Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord, who is the author of all scripture, and ask his guidance and direction as we study his word this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we're again thankful that we have your word. Your word, as the psalmist says, is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is in your light that we see light, the psalmist also said. So we understand that even though we learn much from observation, we learn much through our own intellectual processes. Nevertheless, that which gives order, that which gives structure, that which gives the ultimate meaning and direction to our Our thinking is your word, for your word is absolute truth and gives us that framework for thought. It is in your word that we learn who you are. It is in your word that we learn who we are as human beings and what the basic problem, the ultimate problem really is that the human race faces and that without the solution to that problem there, it really is no other solution. Now, Father, we pray as we study your word that it might give us insight not only into our own spiritual life but into the trends of history as they affect us even today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 2 Kings, Second Kings, and we are now in chapter 22. No one here is unaware of the fact that, once again, we are in the midst of an election cycle. I don't know about you, but I can't wait till Tuesday night not to see the results of the election, but so that I'm no longer bombarded by all of the uh, various uh, lies and distortions and claims, uh, messianic claims of every political party and candidate, no matter who they are, uh, on the television Everybody is promising hope and change one way or the other. Those who uh, over the past few years have had their heart hope tarnished because there hasn't been enough change fear that uh, they are now going to be uh, have everything that they achieved the last few years reversed. Then there's others whose uh, hope is that all of the change will be reversed and once again we can bring in the kingdom. But then there are those of us who have a biblical perspective that recognize 
that if there is ever going to be real hope, it does not come from political change. It doesn't matter whether they're Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, or Independents in charge. If the basic core problem is not changed, then nothing really changes. Some of us have been around long enough to have observed uh, a number of election cycles, and I think many of us would say that the general trajectory of the political process for the last 50 years has been in the same direction, and it really has only slowed down or sped up, that there are certain fundamental foundational realities and philosophies that no matter which party is in control uh, continue to be the same because they all buy into uh, some of the same fundamental beliefs, such as Keynesian economics and such as relativism in terms of governmental uh, absolutes and a number of other, uh, other related issues. So it really doesn't matter the party. You just get one thing or the other light. So our hope has to be in something that has enduring value, something that continues. And we must recognize where real change must take place if there is going to be real substantive social change. And we see a wonderful example of that in our passage this morning in 1 Kings chapter 22. You see, another word for change is reform. Reform means to take something that has uh, deteriorated, something that has uh, been corrupted, and to bring it back to its original standard. That's what happens starting in chapter 22 in the southern kingdom of Judah with a change in administration. But just a change in administration doesn't bring about solution to the ultimate problems. There had already been a recent change in administration. For when the evil king Manasseh died, and we studied him last time, you remember he was the most evil of all of the kings of Judah. He did away with all of the reforms of his father Hezekiah. He took the nation back into the horrible idolatry and the fertility and prosperity religions, the materialistic uh, philosophies of the Canaanite religions. And we studied that and looked at that last time, recognizing that in that evil, he set the southern kingdom of Judah on an irreversible, irreversible course when God promised that they, he would indeed finally bring about the judgment that he had articulated in the Mosaic law in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28 and 29, that he would bring about this judgment and he would have the southern kingdom uh, destroyed. And it was not because of poor economic theory, not because of the down, not treating the uh, uh, downpressed uh, the, the right way, not treating the poor the right way. All of these things were brought up by the prophets, but it wasn't because of a governmental problem. It was because of a deeper problem. And Israel was in a horrible, horrible mess, and they faced various problems. So we have to analyze the crisis because, as you see from the chart that I'm put up on the board, there are various similarities to what we as a nation in terms of the United States of America, but also we as a culture in terms of Western civilization face. Many other nations do as well. 
Israel, though, faced these specific problems. There was a foreign threat, the threat of Assyria. Assyria had risen to great heights. They had already conquered the, and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, and they had uh, removed the population, and they had uh, deported them and, and moved them to other parts of the area, wiping out their ethnic integrity and their national integrity. There were economic woes. Uh, we looked at some of the problems that were faced under Hezekiah. Hezekiah eventually had the moral and spiritual courage to resist paying the tribute to Assyria for which he was going to be punished by Sennacherib. God intervened, though, and punished Sennacherib. But when Manasseh became king, these economic woes intensified. Once again, uh, Assyria asserted their dominance over the Middle East so that the southern kingdom of Judah under Manasseh paid an exorbitant tribute to, um, to Manasseh. Tribute is another word for tax, so just as fee is another word for tax. So don't be confused when you go to the polls this week and you're looking at those three propositions at the bottom, and the first one talks about assessing a fee. That's another word for tax. Assessing a fee for, uh, uh, for uh, drainage, uh, improvement and the, the ongoing lie that we usually hear from government powers that they'll be put in a lockbox. It's never happened, folks. Who's to say this administration is going to have the integrity to have a real financial lockbox on anything? And not only that, this is really a hidden tax on churches. This violates uh, the First Amendment of the, uh, of the nation. There should not be any taxation or fee uh, assessed on any church. So this is a horrible, horrible thing, and I can't believe that organi- conservative organizations actually advocated voting approval for any of the three propositions, and if one has any sense, in my opinion, we will reject any of them because all that they do is increase government power and government expenditure, and that we- that's our basic problem. Uh, Israel faced the same kind of problem, these economic woes. They had failing economies. They had a loss of prosperity. This was all promised by God under the uh, five stages of discipline outlined in Leviticus chapter uh, 26. And it led to increased burdensome taxes. And we have the same thing today. We have just out-of-control spending, out-of-control uh, uh, debt increase, we've gone from a trillion to four trillion dollar debt in, in just two years. wonder if we can go any faster. Um, there's violence in the land, uh, violence, there's, there's anger. Whenever you see this, these kinds of things going on in a culture, the kind of pressure that is put on people financially, they become desperate, and that results in a lot of mental attitude sins, anger, resentment, bitterness, And this manifested itself after Manasseh's death. His son Ammon became king, and it was only, it was within two years that those within his administration rose up and assassinated him. The violence that was in the land was just another manifestation of something deeper. There were social inequities. The poor were oppressed. The uh, widows and orphans were not taken care of, all of these other things. It wasn't a challenge to a problem with the, with the government. It wasn't a government solution. It was an individual solution and an individual problem. 
and um, and that was increasing. You can read about some of those descriptions in Isaiah as well as in Jeremiah. There were foreigners that were exercising an undue influence. I phrased it that way to show a parallel with what we have in our culture today. The undue influence of foreigners was the influence of the pagan religions, of the sexual fertility cults, of Baalism and the Asherah, and the influence that this was having upon the thinking and the culture of, uh, as it had in the northern kingdom of Israel, but now in the southern kingdom of Judah. And then there was also corrupt, uh, corrupt leadership. Manasseh was the most evil of all the kings of the southern kingdom, and he was extremely corrupt. We see all of these same kinds of things going on uh, in our culture today. Too often people want to identify these as the problems. These are not the problems. Don't, don't be deceived. These are simply symptoms. These are the tumors of a massive malignant cancer. And if you go about trying to resolve the problem by dealing with each individual tumor without addressing the underlying cancer, then you will get nowhere. But that is the usual approach that political solutions take. We want to solve the problem of this symptom and that symptom without addressing the underlying problem. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be addressing some of the symptoms. But addressing the symptoms without addressing the underlying cause will just result in more symptoms developing. So we have to understand that the crisis that a culture faces, whether it's the crisis of Judah in the the 7th century B.C. or whether it is the crisis of the United States of America and Western civilization in the 21st century or whether it's the crisis of Western civilization in the 16th century. And where did that come from? Ah, but we have another reform to talk about this morning. A parallel to the reform of Josiah, and that is the reform that began with Martin Luther on October the 31st, 1517. Today is the 493rd anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. So we can connect the dots on all three of these to learn some uh, important uh, important lessons today. As we look at what was going on in, in Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, if anybody had any sense about them, they could easily generate a list similar to the one that I have generated to identify the symptoms, the surface problems that the nation faced. Uh, we can do the same thing today. These problems are very real. Uh, these problems are affecting every individual. Uh, they affected every individual within that culture. They affect every individual with, uh, within our culture. But it only takes it, it takes an astute observer, someone with additional information, to really identify the core problem. That additional information can only come from revelation from God, and that's what we see demonstrated in this first part of chapter 22. Now, let me remind you of something, because we live in a culture that is so dynamically secular that people have lost this particular value, unless you've been 
under the teaching of God's word for some time, that you can learn a lot of things through observation. Science has made remarkable progress. Technology has made uh, remarkable innovations and inventions have come as a result of simple human observation and the what is known as empiricism, which is just simply uh, observing the uh, ways things work within the universe. Uh, the use of human reason has also been responsible for many great advances and improvements in civilization. However, there is a limitation to both reason and the use of empiricism. They operate only to a certain extent, but beyond that, they can't go. They can't give us ultimate answers. Uh, whenever philosophers have pursued the path of uh, pure rationalism or pure empiricism, they always run into the brick wall of the limitations of human reason and the limitations of human experience. They can never get to ultimate answers. There has to be uh, information that comes from outside of the creation, outside of the finite universe, outside of our finite experience and reason in order to provide that which orders and organizes all of the data. Perfect example comes out of the first three chapters in Genesis. God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the Garden of Eden, and he told them that they could eat from every tree in the garden and that they were to go out and they were to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, uh, over the beasts of the field, and over every living thing. And so as they began to exercise their dominion over God's creation, the first thing that happened was that Adam was supposed to start naming the creatures. This involved observation, categorization, classification, and he began to identify and name all of the animals. There was so much that they could learn through simple observation. Same thing with the use of human reason. There was much that they could learn, many conclusions that they could derive as they thought along a proper logical path. But there was one piece of information that, that affected all of the other pieces of information that in fact ordered and organized the rest of the information that they could not gain from simple observation or reason alone. And that was the information that there was one tree in the garden, and if they ate of that tree, that there would be immediate consequences of spiritual death, and this judgment would be uh, enacted by God because of their rebellion and their disobedience to his command. And what this teaches us is that human reason can only go so far, and human experience can only go so far, but there are realities that go beyond human experience and human reason, and the truth of those realities can only be learned by direct revelation from God. And so at the very core of real substantive change, at the very core of reality, is the Word of God. And we see this exemplified in this particular episode in Second Kings chapter uh, 22. We have the introduction of a new king and a new administration in chapter 1. But as I pointed out, just changing the administration, changing the political leaders is not the real issue. It doesn't, and often it doesn't change anything. It didn't change anything uh, when uh, Ammon became king after his father Manasseh died. Oh, yes, it did. 
Manasseh had finally turned to God in the last few years of his life, and when he died, Ammon again reversed that course, that uh, uh, small reformation that Manasseh had begun, and Ammon was once again introducing uh, and promoting evil in the southern kingdom of Judah. So that the change to Ammon had produced a negative change, a uh, loss of hope, but a change to Josiah was going to bring in something that the people had not expected. What's interested is that it was the people who were behind the selection of Josiah, and it was the people who had uh, pr- uh, promoted or had validated the assassination of Ammon. That doesn't make it right. I'm not advocating assassination. I'm just observing what the text says. In the previous chapter, chapter 21, verse 23, we read, Then the servants of Ammon conspired against him. Conspiracy to destroy authority is always wrong in the Scripture because the authorities have been established by God even when those authorities are evil. This is what the Apostle Paul taught in Romans chapter 13. And the ruler of the Roman Empire at that time was none other than Nero. We will study this and see this in our uh, study that I will begin this coming Thursday night on Romans. Actually, I don't think we will study Romans this Thursday night. I'm going to do a little special. This is the week of anniversaries. We have the anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation today, and we have another tremendous anniversary on Thursday, and you'll just have to show up on Thursday to find out what that is. This, uh, what we see in this particular episode is that these servants of Ammon conspired against him, and he killed the king in his, uh, and they killed the king in his own house. But the people of the land, then they took justice in their hands. The king is gone, and they executed all those who had conspired against King Ammon. They recognized the principle of obedience to authority and that rebellion against authority and assassination was wrong, and so they uh, executed those who were involved in that conspiracy. And then the end of verse 24 states, Then the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. So now we're introduced to Josiah in verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. This is the last high watermark in the history of the southern kingdom. And it is only due to one factor, and that is his devotion to God. We're told who his mother was, uh, Judita, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. Uh, and this is uh, repeated in Second Chronicles 34.1. 2 Chronicles 34 is the parallel chapter. There's additional information given there, which we'll look at at times. Uh, the evaluation of Josiah's reign, remember these first couple of verses are simply summaries. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. That means he gets an A+. He did what the law said to do. He was obedient to God. That doesn't mean he was perfect. It doesn't mean he was sinless. But it means that he was devoted to God. He was devoted to the application of the Torah consistently uh, within the land. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. But he began to address the real underlying problem, and this we see in verse 3. 
Uh, came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the house of the Lord. Now, this takes us to when he was 18 years of age. What happened in between? Between the time that he was 8 and the time that he was 18, he had already begun to institute key reforms in the land. He began to clean things up. Now, we're not informed why he did this. We're not informed where he got the information. We're not informed of who influenced him in that direction. We just know that from the beginning of his reign, when he was eight years old, he began to seek the God of his father, David. This is in Second Chronicles chapter 34, uh, verses 3 through 7. You can hold your place here in Second Kings, if you wish, and turn over to Second Chronicles uh, chapter 34 to see what happens. He's positive to God. He understands that there is one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who gave the Torah to Moses, but he doesn't know what the Torah really says. They've just come out of 55 years of the horrors of Manasseh, and Manasseh destroyed all copies of the law, just as at other periods in ancient history, the time when uh, the Syrian Greeks were in charge under Antiochus Epiphanes, were in charge of, uh, uh, of uh, Judah at that time in the intertestamental period. Uh, it was punishable by death if you had a copy of the Torah, the Hebrew Scriptures. The same thing had happened under Manasseh, so that no one had copies of the Torah anymore. Nobody had a Bible. Nobody knew what God said. The only thing they knew was what had been passed on orally through tradition, from, from parents to children. And so there was a, a, a cultural memory, uh, sort of a popular religion idea that was held over, but they didn't have the actual word of God anymore. And, but it was on the basis of that tradition that Josiah is acting. And when he was eight years old, we're told in Second Chronicles 34.3, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, so in those four years, he's learning some things, but it took time before there's application. Sometimes people want an application to run way ahead of knowledge. He has knowledge first, and then he begins to apply it. And he began, we're told in Second Chronicles that verse 24-3, that he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. All of the idols have to go. They broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence. He, he's going out and he is actively engaged in destroying all of the false worship sites. Now let's make an application there. In all of our thinking, we have Baalist-type thinking that's come into our thought through the thinking of the world, the cosmic system around us. We have all of these ideas. We have to get rid of those ideas. There's only one way to do that. Once you get rid of them, you have to replace them with something, and that is they have to be replaced with the truth. But there has to be an activist agenda in your head to get rid of the evil that comes in via the culture and various uh, atheistic, secular, materialistic, uh, mystical philosophies, whatever they might be. So this is what he is doing. He is 
getting rid of the external manifestations of that internal type of thinking. So he breaks down the altars, the incense altars, the wooden images, carved images, molded images. He broke into pieces, made dust of them, and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. And then in verse 5 he says, the text reads, he also burned the bones of the priests. That is, he executed the priests of these false religions, and then he burned their bodies and their bones on, the, uh, on their altars. Now, we'll come back and look at a specific instance of that, which is a fulfillment of one of the most remarkable prophecies in Scripture. We studied it at the beginning when under Jeroboam I, uh, when Jeroboam was building the uh, competitive altar uh, in Bethel, and uh, God sent a, an unnamed prophet to him and announced judgment upon Jeroboam, upon his house, and upon that altar, saying that uh, at some future time a king named Josiah would come and he would sacrifice the priests of this false religion upon that very altar and burn his bones there. So that is a prophecy out of, out of First Kings that is fulfilled here at, at this time. More details are given later in the text. We'll address it at that point. He, but this was his practice. He would execute these, these uh, priests of the false religions and false thinking upon their altars. And the result is he cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. This is the same word used in the Mosaic law for ritual cleansing in order that the nation now can be prepared to come to God. They have to go through this cleansing process. We cannot come into the presence of God without cleansing from sin. That's the principle. Now, in the church age, we know that this cleansing is grounded upon the payment for sin. But in the Old Testament, there was not only personal salvation, but there is also ritual cleansing that must take place. And according to the Torah, there had to be a cleansing uh, and a removal of all of the idols and all of the false religions uh, from the land. And it's after that, after he cleanses, then he begins to rebuild the temple. That's, that's the order. And to and rather not rebuild the temple, but rather to uh, uh, refurnish the temple, renovate the temple. So he does all of this. And notice in verse 6 it says, He did this in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon as far as Naphtali. This is the northern kingdom. But the northern kingdom, remember, was destroyed by Assyria. And those people were taken out. But there are still uh, a few Jews that are living in the northern kingdom. Uh, there's no organized kingdom there. But this is still part of the land that God gave to Israel. Now, that's an important principle. Even though God had fulfilled his promise of judgment on the Israelites in the northern kingdom by removing them from the land, the land was still Israel's, even though it was now inhabited by different people. Application. The Palestinians are making a fraudulent claim to the West Bank. The land is still Israel's by right of God's promise to Abraham Isaac, and Jacob. Just because it's not under the political control of of an Israeli state at this point doesn't mean it's not theirs. The northern kingdom, even though they were destroyed politically by Assyria, that land was still Israel's land. This is the precedent for that. And this just wipes out all of the anti-Zionist arguments all of the arguments from the liberals who always want to take the Palestinian side as 
being the victims of injustice. Yes, they are the victims of injustice. They are the victims of the injustice of Islam. They are the victims of the injustice of the uh, Arab nations that have kept them there. And uh, if you don't know this, uh, on the uh, hierarchy of ethnic peoples in the Middle East, uh, the Arabs believe that the worst of the worst are the Palestinians. Just ask a Jordanian, just ask a Syrian, just ask, ask a, a, a someone from Saudi Arabia or from Lebanon. They all despise the Palestinians. The only time they ever uh, talk about anything positive about the Palestinians is when they're using the Palestinians as a wedge issue uh, against Israel in reference to uh, Western support of Israel. Uh, but the, uh, all of the uh, uh, Arabs, all the Muslim peoples, uh, the Egyptians, Syrians, uh, Lebanese, Jordanians, uh, Saudi Arabians, they all hate and despise, um, despise the, the uh, Palestinians. Uh, Palestinians were led by, by Arafat, who was in prison in Egypt uh, because of his involvement with the Muslim Brotherhood. They made a deal to let him out of prison. They sent him to the Syrians, and while he was in Syria, he was uh, uh, trying to develop a revolt against the Syrian government, so they kicked him out, and Hussein took him into Jordan. He did the same thing in Jordan, which led to Black October in 1970, when, when uh, uh, 20,000 or more uh, Palestinians were killed in that uprising when they tried to overthrow King Hussein. And then they, uh, they, they kicked him out, and they went down to Kuwait and got kicked out of Kuwait, and they went to Lebanon and got kicked out of Lebanon, and that's because everybody hates the Palestinians. But the only injustice the Palestinians have had doesn't really come from Israel. That's not denying there might have been, you know, a couple of incidences here and there. It comes from Islam, and it comes from the Arab uh, nations surrounding them who just use them as a, as a political football. But the pattern that we see here is that is that even though the land is not under the political control of a Jewish government, it is still Jewish land. And God never has revoked their title uh, to the land. And so there is a uh, reformation that is taking place in the land, and this is instigated by, by Josiah. But then after... He's been on the throne 10 years. Something remarkable happens. This is indicated in uh, starting in verse 3. We'll go back to 2 Kings 22 now. It parallels what's in uh, uh, Chronicles 34. 2 Chronicles 34 tells the same story. came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam. See, all those terms are there so that you know this is a real person. It's not some made-up legend. You can find him in the genealogical records that uh, the Jewish authorities kept. Uh, They sent Shaphan the scribe to the house of the Lord, that's the temple, saying, go up, this was his command, go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. This refers to the collection of the tithes. This was the tax system of the Mosaic law. There were three tithes. Two were taken every year. A third was taken every third year. And this was the basis for running the uh, government supporting the priesthood. Now, we see two things there just by way of passing. First of all, there is fiscal responsibility. 
Second thing we see is that there is also uh, fiscal integrity. Responsibility and integrity go hand in hand. First of all, we note that they counted the money. They knew how much money they had. They weren't spending money they didn't have. They weren't into Keynesian deficit spending as a path to prosperity. They are going to figure out exactly how much money they have, and on the basis of how much money they actually have, they're going to distribute that money to the various uh, uh, builders and contractors and those who are responsible for the work. And these were men who were who had possessed integrity so much so that just as what happened under under Solomon, it says that they don't have to give an account for every dollar they spend because these are men who deal faithfully. There were it, there was integrity among the leadership, and there was no doubt whatsoever that they were going to spend the money on exactly what they were supposed to spend the money on. There was no corruption, and so they, uh, they accomplished the task that they were, uh, they were engaged in. Now, the first, these, these first few verses here from 3 to 7 describe uh, those building endeavors, but I want, to change, I want you to shift ahead to verse 8 because this tells us the real dynamic of Josiah's Reformation. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I found the book of the law. What an announcement that must have been. It's been 57 years, 55 under Manasseh and two years under Ammon, 57 years, and the people have been in darkness because there has been a government assault on the truth of God's word. There had been a government attempt to completely eradicate the law of God from the knowledge of the people. But it had not been, and never has been in history, and never will be uh, eradicated. And so Hilkiah has discovered the book of the law in the house of the law. Now, there's some discussion. We don't know whether this is the entire Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, or whether this is just a portion of the law. Some believe it's only the punishment judgment sections of the Mosaic Law, Leviticus 26 or Deuteronomy 28. I believe it was much more than that. It may have been the entire book of Deuteronomy. It more likely was uh, all of the Mosaic Law, uh, but especially the focus is on those judgment sections, the uh, five stages of discipline that God uh, promised that he would take the nation through if they disobeyed him. So they announced that they found the book of the law in the house of the law, and Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. So when there is the reading of the word of God, this is what is the true basis for change, because it's not coming from human experience and human reason. It's not coming from our relativistic standards, our individual opinions, but it is coming from the absolute truth that has been addressed from the throne of God to the human human beings, to his creation. And so Shaphan the scribe then takes it, verse 9, to the king, bringing the king word, saying, Your servants have gathered the money found in the house, delivered it from the hand of those who do the work. So that's all been accomplished. And then in in verse 10 he says, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan then reads the book to the king. And it happened. Now this is the response. It happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. What happens is he becomes aware of, of the sin of the nation 
and his own personal sin. We do not become aware of this real crisis problem apart from revelation from God. It is only the word of God that reveals the real problem that mankind has. The real problem that we have isn't economic, it's not military, it's not political, it doesn't have to do with uh, wrong business models, it doesn't have to do with problems in leadership, uh, it doesn't have to do with corruption in the culture. All of those are simply the tumors that indicate that there is a deep, profound cancer eating away at the core of the human race, and that is sin. Sin is not some big egregious sin. Uh, you can name your terrible two or nasty nine or, or uh, whatever you come up with as the big sins, uh, but it has to do with the basic orientation of the human heart to solve his problems apart from God, to live independently from God, and to live life on his own terms. Man is standing, shaking his hand to God, saying, I'm going to do it my own way. That is the essence of sin, and it manifests itself in thousands of thousands of different ways. Some of them are cloaked in what appears to be good. Others are cloaked in what the society generally recognizes uh, to be uh, bad or what they refer to as evil. What the Bible means by evil, though, is that ultimate act of rebellion against God. And we only know about that because it, God exposes it through his word. And when God's word is not given a priority position among a people or in a culture, then the result is always going to be the shift to paganism, the shift to co- corruption, and the malignancy of the cancer of sin is just going to uh, destroy Uh, the culture from within. There's only one basis for hope, and that is a return to the Word of God. In the first place, that ought to start is in our own individual lives. How many times you have heard is the last two years when Jim Myers was here, Jim talking about the profound biblical illiteracy even among so-called doctrinal churches, churches that emphasize the teaching of His Word. I'm not going to have anybody raise your hands or embarrass yourself, but I wonder how many of us have read through the Bible uh, ever from Genesis to Revelation. How many of you have read through the Bible annually in one year, read through the Bible? You ought to do that. If if we really believe the Bible is important, we don't need a... Let me tell you this. Somehow, some of you got the idea that the gift of pastor-teacher is some mystical, magical, priestly gift, and only the pastor-teacher can understand the Word. That enslaved you. That is a horrible lie. You cannot, there are things, of course, you can't understand, but you don't throw away the whole Bible because there might be ten verses that confuse you a little bit. You need to be reading the Word of God because it is the Word of God that is what? alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Not the teaching from the pulpit is alive and powerful. It is the Word of God that is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And you should be reading the Bible every single day. That is God's primary instrument by which he challenges and changes a culture. Let me give you a pertinent example. In the... In the early 16th century, 
there was an incredible spiritual darkness on Christendom in Western Europe. And that spiritual darkness was called the Roman Catholic Church. The theology of the Roman Catholic Church had spiritually and intellectually enslaved Western Europe for uh, approximately a thousand years. The root of this was the loss of the Bible. The root of it was the elevation of a priestcraft, the Roman Catholic priesthood, to, to be the sole interpreters of the Word of God. Only a priest could do that because the Bible was in the Latin. It was not in the language of the people. The Bible was originally written in the language of the people. Koine Greek means common Greek, everyday language of the everyday person on the street. That's how the Bible was written. Same thing with the Hebrew and the Old Testament, so that everyday people could read it and understand it and know what God had to say. Well, in the Roman Catholic Church, they uh, hid the Word of God from the people. They hid it via the use of language, and they were opposed to anyone who translated the Bible into the everyday language of people. They persecuted and oppressed those like John Wycliffe and his followers who were called the Lollards in the 14th century in England because they were translating the uh, Bible into the English vernacular and others in throughout the uh, uh, Middle Ages, people like uh, Jan Hus in uh, Czechoslovakia and others who were trying to get the Bible into the everyday language of the people. And so the loss of the Bible in the hands of the people, the knowledge of the truth, enslaved the people to spiritual darkness. This led, because of the loss of the Word of God, to a loss of an understanding of grace. Under the control of Roman Catholic theology, the concept of grace was perverted into works, so that grace came to mean works. And the way that you received grace from God is that you earned it, and then grace was then meted out to you. The idea was that Jesus because he was the Son of God, and because he was perfectly righteous, when he died on the cross, he, ha- he had all of this excess righteousness because he was perfect. He didn't need it to save himself. So all of his righteousness was put over here in what was called the treasury of merit. Then you had all of the saints. Now, this is really important to understand this. You had all of the saints. These were the especially holy ones who had more righteousness than they really needed to get into heaven. So all the saints had a little bit extra righteousness. Mary had a lot of extra righteousness. Uh, her mother, St. Anne, had a lot of extra righteousness. Uh, various other saints had extra righteousness. And so all of their extra righteousness was stuffed over here in this bank account called the Treasury of Merit. Those of us who didn't have quite enough righteousness to get into heaven could get some of their righteousness if we did certain things, if you confessed all of your sins. Now, when we confess our sins before Bible class, we don't have to confess all of our sins. 1 John 1, 9 does not say that. It says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That is the ones who we con- that we confessed and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That includes the thousands of little sins and big sins that you didn't confess. They're all cleansed. But in the teaching of Roman Catholicism in the Middle Ages, you had to confess all your sins, the big ones, the little ones, the peccadillos. They all had to be enumerated, every single one of them. And if you didn't get them all all named... If you didn't get them all confessed, then guess what? You wouldn't get into heaven. 
You didn't have enough righteousness, so you had to get righteousness. And one of the ways that you did this was by purchasing indulgences. And you could buy indulgences uh, by giving money to the church. You paid so much money, you would get uh, so many years uh, taken off of your time in purgatory. Because in Roman Catholic theology, if you died and you didn't have enough righteousness, you didn't go directly into heaven, you went into a holding pattern called purgatory. And you didn't, nobody knew how long you would be in purgatory. That was a great marketing tool. So you always had a group of people you could sell indulgences to. And you could buy indulgences for mom and dad and your grandparents, anybody who was dead, so they wouldn't have to spend as much time in purgatory. And this just put a burden of superstition, just a spiritual bondage upon the people. And then along came a young man, a young man by the name of Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was one of these people, I don't know that I would have really liked Martin Luther. He was one of these bothersome type of people that just has a hypersensitive conscience. Every little thing he did wrong bothered him, and he was just living a life basically in fear. And rightly so, because in Roman Catholic theology, they're threatened with eternal punishment in, in hellfire uh, unless they confess every single sin. So one day as he's traveling, and he's out in the woods, he got caught in a thunderstorm, and he almost got killed by a bolt of lightning. And as he fell off his horse, he swore an oath to St. Anne, because he was a good Roman Catholic, St. Anne being the mother of of uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, for those of you who don't have a Catholic background, he swore to St. Anne that he would become a monk. And so he entered the monastery. This really aggravated his father, who was a minor and wanted uh, his smart son, uh, Martin, who wasn't the oldest. The oldest uh, would get the primary inheritance, but Martin was pretty smart, so his father wanted him to go be a lawyer so he could take care of his mom and dad in, his old, in their old age. You know, he was very practical. So Martin trots off to the monastery and angers his father. And for the next several years, Martin is just consumed with guilt, every little sin. In fact, his, his, uh, uh, those in authority over him in, in the monastery would say, you know, quit obsessing about all these little peccadillos. He would go into the confessional and confess for six or seven hours at a time. He was driving his confessors absolutely nuts. He was, he was focusing on every little minor thing. And yet when he left, he would be going home and he would say, Oh, no, I forgot this. I forgot that. I forgot this other thing. And he was just consumed with his own guilt and his own inadequacy. And it was about this same time that he was sent as two representatives from the uh, monastery to go to Rome in order to represent uh, his region at uh, various functions in Rome. So he goes to Rome, and there he discovered how corrupt the priesthood was. See, he always realized how corrupt he was, and he just about had a, had a mental breakdown when he had to conduct his first mass because he didn't think he was worthy enough. And when he's, when he's asking the, uh, praying to God to convert the bread into the body of Christ, he almost had a meltdown right there in front of the congregation. I mean, he would, he would tremble. He would get tremors. He was so overwhelmed uh, with, with guilt uh, over his own sinfulness. And so he, um, he goes to Rome, and there he discovers that he, he's absolutely per, almost morally perfect compared to the priesthood in Rome. These guys are so corrupt, and they're into such sexual perversity that they thought you were virtuous if you were having sex with a woman. So he goes back to Germany afterward, and 
He's just absolutely overwhelmed with the sinfulness of the church and the sinfulness of the clergy and his own sinfulness. And then he goes to, uh, the, he gets transferred to a small town called Wittenberg, about 2,000, 2,500 people. But uh, uh, Frederick uh, the Wise, who was the elector, the ruler of Saxony, had just started this new university there, and he wanted that to be very successful. And so Martin Luther was sent there because he was so brilliant. And his supervisor within his the Augustinian order recognized some of his problems, and he thought, you know, the thing that he probably needs to, to, to focus on is the Bible. Now, this was Johann Staupitz, and, and he was, he was uh, somewhat of a mystic. He was sort of a halfway there in terms of uh, uh, the, the understanding, understanding grace. So he sent Martin Luther to Wittenberg to be the professor of the Bible and theology. But see, like so many religions, Luther didn't know anything about the Bible. He just knew about, about church tradition. And what the fathers taught. He never really read or studied his Bible before. Same thing happens in Judaism. Same thing happens in a lot of branches of Christianity today. People don't ever read their Bible. They just listen to somebody tell them about the Bible. They listen to what the rabbis taught about the Old Testament. They never read the Old Testament. They, and when I went to, uh, same things during the Catholic Church. When I was at the University of St. Thomas working on my degree in uh, philosophy there, there were often uh, nuns in the class. And one time I was in a discussion with one of the nuns, and she said, well, you've got to understand we're Catholics. We never read the Bible. Uh, the same thing happens with Presbyterians, Methodists, and a lot of Bible church people. How many of you said, oh, gosh, I've never read my whole Bible? Well, you just fit in that same category. So Martin Luther now has to teach the Bible. So starting in about 1513, he's starting to teach Romans and he's teaching Psalms and then Romans and Galatians. And as he's reading the Bible, he begins to be aware that what the Bible teaches is that all are sinners. Everybody sins. No one is good enough to measure up to God. Not one person. And no one can earn their way to God. No one can, can get grace by buying indulgences. Grace means undeserved merit. It doesn't mean that you do something to get grace. And then in about 1516, as uh, October, the month of October was approaching, uh, Frederick the Wise, the elector, wanted to raise more money to get the, the to really get the the university going. So he started uh, the, got permission from uh, the Pope to sell indulgences in Saxony to raise money for this for this university. That's a novel fundraising idea. Uh, so he uh, uh, they're selling indulgences in order to to do this. And of course, the big sale day is on All Saints Day. Because you're going to be purchasing indulgences to get the righteousness from all these saints. So the big day is All Saints Day, which is November the 1st. Uh, The day before November the 1st was called All Hallows. That's another word for saints. All Hallows Eve, now known as Halloween. Okay, that's where all the dots start to connect for some of you. So on Halloween, you prepare for... uh, All Saints Day. And so Luther began to really think things through at that point. It took him another year to connect all the dots, during which time the Roman Catholic Church started to promote the sale of indulgences to raise money to finish uh, the the Vatican, to finish St. Peter's uh, at the Vatican. And so whenever you've gone to Rome, you've gone to St. Peter's, just remember that the money that, that built that came from people who were buying their way into heaven. 
And so one of their best salesmen uh, was a guy named Tetzel. And Tetzel would uh, basically go through Germany saying when, when a, a penny in the coffer rings, a soul from Purgatory Springs. And so hundreds of thousands of people are given as much money as they could. Now, he actually said that. Um, and um, that was a popular ditty. That was number one on the hit chart at the time. And, um, and so people within Saxony, because he was right on the border and they weren't far, would go over there and give all of their money. He was, Tetzel wasn't allowed in Saxony because... Uh, Frederick wanted all of his indulgence money to go to the, building the university. He didn't want it going down to Rome. So by October of 1517, Martin Luther's got this all figured out finally, and he realizes you can't be justified in the presence of God on the basis of what anybody else does because they're all sinners as well. You can only be justified by God if someone has paid the full penalty for your sins because we can never remember all of our sins. Somebody else has to pay for it completely and totally, and he came to an understanding of what we call justification by faith alone, that a person is justified by God only on the basis of believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Now, how did he get that? He got it from studying Romans, not studying canon law from the church. He didn't get it from studying what other theologians had said in the church fathers. He got it from studying Romans and studying Galatians. It is the word of God that changes people. It is the word of God that changes nations. It is the word of God that changes history. And history changed with Martin Luther. History changed with Josiah because they took people back to the Word of God. And if you don't get the people, the culture, back to the Word of God, which is the real basis for change, then there is no hope. The only hope we have is in the Word of God and in Jesus Christ and the fact that he is the one who solved the core problem. If you don't get the core cancer solved, it doesn't matter what the politicians do with the tumors because there will just be more tumors. But we have real hope in real change, and that only comes from the Word of God. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to reflect on history, and to realize that what you have said in your word is the absolute truth, that your word is alive and powerful. It is your word that gives us guidance and direction. It is your word that defines the basic problem of the human race, which is sin. And until that is solved, all other solutions are simply cosmetic. They're just moving around the symptoms. They are not addressing the core problem. Father, we realize that there must be, uh, that we must address both the core problem and the symptoms at times, and that is why it's important to be involved in uh, government, involved in politics, involved in uh, elections. And so we pray for this election this coming uh, week. We pray for the results of this election that. Uh, those who would seek to uh, destroy the constitution of this country by putting too much power in the hands of federal government, that 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 movement would be reversed. But we recognize that no matter what the changes are politically, it never really solves the problem unless there is a heart change among the people, a turning to truth, absolute truth, a turning to your word. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. 
Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He had you in mind when he was on the cross. He paid that penalty in full. So the issue now is not your sin. The issue now is not your failures. The issue now is not what you've done. The issue is what you think about what Jesus did. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you're trusting in him, then you have eternal life. If you do not trust in him, the scripture says, then there is no hope. There is no future. There is just judgment. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with all the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.